If you have 15 minutes and about $40 you don't mind parting with, you can take a ride on Colorado River water. So, Marcello? And you're from Sicily? Palermo. Palermo, oh. Marcello Salati, my guide, is steering the boat. Actually, it's a sleek wood gondola with red upholstered seats. But I'm going to sing for you. Ready for some music? I'm totally ready. (laughs) This is called Volare, it means to fly. As we're floating along, the glow of the sky changes color, turning from a pale, buttery orange to a dusky shade of purple. You'll see up here, now the skylight changed to sunset. See that? Oh, yes. Does this feel authentic to you? It does. It does, Bella. We pass a gelato stand, a winding Venetian-style alleyway, also a Banana Republic, a Tommy Bahama... We're on Colorado River water inside a recreation of the Venice Canals in the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas. That's why this boat ride sounds like we're in a mall. Seems kind of weird to be on a canal in the middle of the desert, am I right? (laughs) Above a casino. We're on the second floor. Right, we're on the second floor in a canal in the desert. 216,000 gallons of water above above the restaurants and casino here. Wow, 216,000 gallons. Hope the floor is strong. It might feel, I don't know, ridiculous, indulgent, wasteful to use precious Colorado River water for such a spectacle. But like many things in this city of illusions, all is not as it seems. So where does the water come from? Uh, It recirculates. So they do a good job of that, you know, conserving. I'm Amy Scott. Welcome to How We Survive, a podcast for Marketplace about people navigating solutions to a changing climate. This is episode six, Betting on Conservation. Las Vegas is a fantastical Disneyland for adults in the middle of the desert. But it's also become the place for water conservation and innovation. And to understand how, we're going to sit down with the woman who reshaped water politics in Las Vegas and arguably the American West. And through her career, we're going to get a picture of one city's fight to stay alive at whatever cost and the trade-offs that we all may have to consider to keep living where we want to live. Spend any time talking about water in the American Southwest, and you will hear one name come up again and again. Pat Mulroy. Pat Mulroy. Pat Mulroy. I'm sure you you heard her name a lot. Pat Mulroy was the top water manager in Las Vegas for 25 years. And she was the most powerful water manager in North America. And she is a bulldog. She's still on wheels. Pat was the general manager of both the Las Vegas Valley Water District and the Southern Nevada Water Authority, the agencies that deliver water in the southern part of the state to millions of people. She retired back in 2014 and now runs her own consulting firm, but she's still involved in water and has been ever since she got her unconventional start. How would you sum up your career in water in just a couple of sentences? And then we can go more in detail. Probably the best way to describe it is being in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
always being there when everything is exploding, imploding, going awry. Um, and then with the team, finding ways to um, overcome that to allow Las Vegas to continue to exist. Back in 1985, Pat was working for the county court system when an opportunity fell into her lap. A friend of mine had just become the general manager of the Las Vegas Valley Water District, and he offered me the number two job over administration, so I took it. Those happened to be the very years in which growth in southern Nevada exploded and our water use was increasing dramatically year over year. Most of southern Nevada's water supply, 90 percent, comes from the Colorado River. But when the Colorado River Compact, the deal that divvied up the river among states, was signed in 1922, the county that included Las Vegas only had a few thousand people. So out of all the basin states, Nevada has the smallest share of Colorado River water, less than 2 percent. But by the late 1980s, Las Vegas was growing and fast. Fantasy becomes reality when the mirage appears on the Las Vegas Strip. The Mirage, a mega resort, opened in 1989. With its exploding volcano and 20,000-gallon fish tank, it signaled the beginning of the opulent strip we're familiar with today, which includes a New York City-themed roller coaster and a half-scale Eiffel Tower. And in the midst of all that growth, with groundwater stores already depleted from over-pumping, water was beginning to run out. Conservation was not on anybody's mind at the time. And things went sour really fast. The various entities began to declare war on one another, competing for that last drop of water. At the time, the region's water was managed by seven different agencies who were all at each other's throats for that precious water. Things got so bad, Pat's boss was out, and Pat, who was number two in Vegas water, became number one in Vegas water in the hopes that she could somehow bring people together. So I became general manager of the water district in 89. First thing was to create some form of unity and heal the wounds in southern Nevada. Pat gathered up all the fighting agencies into one big one, the Southern Nevada Water Authority. And Pat was the boss. In the mid-1990s, Clark County was adding more than 1,000 new residents every week. Knowing the region would need more water to sustain that growth, Pat went to work looking for new sources of water and negotiating better terms for Nevada. We were able to amend various contracts with the federal government, which opened up opportunities for new resources for Southern Nevada. And then we spent the better part of the 90s negotiating with our neighbors on the Colorado River. For example, Nevada was able to work out a deal to bank excess water in Arizona that it could then take out in the future. And Pat's approach and style made some waves. So I'm very curious how you feel about the nickname, the Water Witch. Where did that come from? That probably came early on in the 90s um, <laughs> when uh, I was rather aggressive um, in trying to rattle 
some of these other states. And we had actually put ads in the Denver Post um, seeking to buy Colorado River water that was in use in Colorado and move it downstream to Las Vegas. As far as we can tell, not much came of these ads, but they really riled people up. So, yes, I was the evil witch who was going to steal everyone's water. And my staff gave me a broom for Christmas. I thought that was hilarious. So, yeah, it didn't doesn't bother me in the slightest. It strikes me that there's probably a little sexism going on there. Were you in a pretty male-dominated field? That is the understatement of a lifetime. When I started, I went to my first Colorado River Water Users Conference. I walked into my first session of the conference. I had my newly appointed general manager. I had my badge on, my name, my title. This elderly gentleman comes over to me, taps me nicely on the shoulder, and he says, ma'am, the spouse's lounge is down the hall. And I said, thank you, I'll tell my husband. I mean, it was brutal. After a while, though, some other women started showing up at those meetings. So when Maureen Stapleton got the job in San Diego and Arizona had a female director of water resources, Rita Pearson, now we had some numbers. And we just loved giving the men a hard time. They'd go in the bathroom if they tried to have secret meetings. They'd go to the men's room. So we started going to the girls' room. Drove them crazy. I never wow. took it seriously. It was, you had to, it, it's generational, it's cultural. So I took it with humor and a grain of salt and just helped try and move the needle. So Pat was able to navigate the waters of Colorado River politics and negotiate better deals and more water for Las Vegas. And her legacy is evident on the Vegas Strip of today, where human ingenuity and excess are on full display. So we're standing in front of the Bellagio Hotel. There is a giant lagoon and showgirls and people walking around with giant daiquiris. We're part of a crowd surrounding a giant pool of water waiting for a show. Every 15 to 30 minutes throughout the day, a thousand fountains shoot water hundreds of feet into the air. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Dancing water. Bellagio fountains were built in 1998. They require more than 22 million gallons of water. Now, the economic value of that fountain is unbelievable. I mean, the number of tourists that stand in front of it, that draw people to the Bellagio, it's become the symbol for the city. And the water actually comes from private wells beneath the resort and gets recycled over and over. So yeah, the water that's used in Vegas stays in Vegas. Casino magnate Steve Wynn built the Bellagio on top of an old golf course. It's one of the last old groundwater rights in Southern Nevada. Between that and captured gray water from the hotel, 
That's what's in the Bellagio fountain. Is it correct that you told Steve Wynn that if he wanted to have a big water feature, he needed to to recycle the water? Oh, absolutely. That was when he was building the pirate exhibit that used to be on the corner of Las Vegas Boulevard and Spring Mountain um, when he built Treasure Island. And that's when he agreed and double-plumbed the Mirage and he double-plumbed Treasure Island, built a wastewater treatment plant in the basement of his parking garage and used that water in the water feature. The Bellagio fountains lose a lot of water to evaporation every year. So it's not waste-free. And last year, the Las Vegas Valley Water District banned new outdoor fountains and water features, even on the Strip. But Pat says today, most of the water used indoors in southern Nevada gets treated and reused. We recycle 93% of all our wastewater. If it hits the sewer system, it gets recycled. And they have an incentive to do that. We were able to negotiate a contract with the federal government whereby for every gallon of treated wastewater we return to Lake Mead, we can take an additional gallon out. So it's a closed loop. You bring it in, you use it, you return it, you can bring it back in again. But in the early 2000s, all these efforts would no longer be enough. Was there like a a moment where you realized we have to change tack? Oh, yeah. I remember that moment vividly. I'll never forget the day my deputy over water resources walked in and she said, we have a problem. We can't produce a 50-year resource plan because Lake Mead will drop below the elevation at which we can take additional supplies. A 50-year resource plan is something the Water Authority had to submit to the state every year to show they had a plan to get enough water for the future. And in 2002, Pat's team couldn't do it. When the drought hit, Lake Mead dropped to an all-time low. And the other states weren't willing to give up any extra water. Everybody was starting to honker down. So we had to turn on a dime, which is not easy to do. That's after the break. How We Survive comes from Marketplace, a nonprofit and nonpartisan newsroom. We take on stories for each season that we think can prompt meaningful change. Join us on this mission today by making a donation. Go to marketplace.org survive or follow the link in our show notes. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost to splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Khreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, 
the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. All right, we just drove through the security station. They asked if we had any firearms or drones. We said no, and they let us through. It's an impressive ride from the Vegas Strip to the Nevada-Arizona border to the place that stores the lifeblood of Las Vegas, Lake Mead, the reservoir formed by the Hoover Dam. And the cliffs are so red. It's really dramatic. My producer, Caitlin, and I join the stream of tourists who walk out onto the dam to gawk at this feat of engineering. All right. We're standing on top of the Hoover Dam looking down into Lake Mead. We're 726 feet from the base. We can see the infamous bathtub ring, the mark where the water once was. So we see, like, blue, blue water traveling through this red, brown, rocky canyon with a big old stripe of white on either side where the water used to be. Believe it or not, this water is actually higher by a couple feet than it has been, but we're still definitely in the midst of a drought. You can see stairs and a dock, and there's like a very big distance between the stairs and the water level. So those docks used to be floating, I presume? Yeah, stairs to nowhere. Stairs and then a long jump. This year had actually been pretty good for Lake Mead. The wet winter means it's a bit higher than usual, but it's still been trending downwards for the last 20 years. Lake Mead has a storage capacity of more than 9 trillion gallons of water, enough to flood the state of Connecticut 10 feet deep. But it hasn't had that much water since 1983. I guess it was built to rise and fall, but this is pretty darn low. After the drought hit in the early 2000s, Las Vegas was worried the water levels would drop so low they would no longer be able to get water out of its intake tunnels. So Pat Mulroy and the Southern Nevada Water Authority came up with a plan to build another deeper intake known as the third straw underneath the lake, a giant 24-foot diameter concrete tunnel drilled way down into the earth, three miles long. It was completed in 2015 and cost nearly a billion dollars. And it's bought Vegas some time. From 2002 until present day, it has been a constant battle against Mother Nature. Another front in that battle is conservation, changing how people use water in Las Vegas. We started with a dollar per square foot. Pat launched a cash-for-grass program, paying customers to rip out their lawns. They now pay $3 a square foot. Today, we have removed enough to go around the world one and a half times. So that's how much sod has been removed. And set up strict rules for watering. She also started a campaign to change people's behavior. Can you talk a little bit about the PSAs that you did? (laughs) Oh, you like those, huh? Well, we wanted to be humorous and get people's attention, right? And they got people's attention. 
Water's running down the street, right? Guys, silver watering his lawn. This little old lady knocks on the door. She's got a cane and she must be 90 years old. Can I help you? And she tells him he's overwatering and he's just standing there staring at her. Oh! So she kicks him in the groin <laughs> to get his attention. Oh man, it was pretty funny. I mean, we even had PSA announcements over every urinal at the stadiums because that was our audience. But changing behavior wasn't easy. We learned that uh, never try to tell people in Las Vegas to turn their fountains off. They went berserk. Absolutely berserk. It must be something about the sensation of hearing water when it's 120 degrees outside that has a cooling effect. Also learn, never get between a senior citizen and his car washing schedule. That's not a safe place to live. So we finally gave up um, after severe flogging and said, okay, well, you need to put a shutoff nozzle on the hose. While Pat retired in 2014, her legacy lives on. The conservation efforts she set in motion continue. Water district employees now patrol neighborhoods, handing out warnings or even fines for watering violations that can get up to thousands of dollars for repeat offenders. The legislature recently passed a law banning all non-functional turf in Southern Nevada by 2026. It allowed us over time to reduce our water use from, we were well over our allocation on the river of 300,000. We were taking 325,000 at the time, and we have brought it all the way down to 225,000. That's acre feet. And that means Southern Nevada has been able to cut its Colorado River water use by 31 percent in the past few decades. At the same time, the area's population has grown by more than 50 percent. Vegas has proven that it can grow for now, and it's investing in new technology so that it can keep growing. What would you say are the most exciting solutions that are in the works um, that could really you know, move the needle for for the Southwest? What we have is a future as a mosaic, where you have various smaller pieces that come together to create a whole. Mother Nature isn't going to afford you that much time. Some of those pieces include banning evaporative cooling for any new commercial buildings, systems that use a ton of water, The Water Authority is also limiting the size of residential pools and has cut down on leaky pipes by using high-tech sensors and alert systems. I mean, our system, when we can say we have a 1-2% leakage rate, nobody in the country's got that. Nobody. But still, life in the desert has its limits. And the threat of Deadpool looms when water drops so low in Lake Mead that it won't be able to flow downstream anymore, threatening not just the region's drinking water, but its power supply. Conservation is not a be-all, end-all solution. But we have got to start diversifying and supplementing waters of the Colorado River. 
In the face of the recent drought, the basin states did negotiate a new deal over the Colorado River to conserve enough water to stabilize the system for now. But it's a stopgap that'll have to be renegotiated in 2026. And more cuts could be coming for Las Vegas. This is the challenge that has been looming out there now for almost 20 years, over 20 years, which is how do you rethink and restructure this river use and how the river is managed in light of what is not just a drought, but permanently changed climate conditions. All this makes me wonder, as I do every time I visit this city in the desert, how is Las Vegas even possible? I think from the outside, it's seen as this, you know, party city, this never-ending, you know, vacation um, in a place that gets, what, four inches of rain a year? I mean— When we're lucky. When you're lucky. It's it's sort of mind-boggling that it exists. My first counter is, well, should Saudi Arabia be building new cities in the middle of the desert? There are desert dwellers all around the world. And given the huge increase in the human population, I'm not sure you can extract them from those desert environs. Las Vegas's economy, tourism, Florida's all tourism too, right? I mean, just because we're a tourist economy doesn't make us any better or any worse than anybody else. We all live in arid climates. And what it means to us is that we have to completely rethink how we manage water resources. For Pat, whose career was forged in drought, that means thinking big, like a groundwater pipeline project she backed that some argued was effectively stealing water from farmers in order to sustain cities. That plan has since been abandoned. Or building an even bigger pipeline that would move water from the Mississippi River to the American West. I think we've reached a point in this country between flood and drought that no idea should be off the table. Right now, I think everything goes on the table and everything gets looked at. We're being left behind in the dust. One solution that no one seems to want to talk about, but to me is like a neon sign flashing in the desert... Do you think that there is an argument that growth needs to be limited? Okay, think of the socioeconomic consequences of what you're saying, all right? You start limiting growth in a massive way. What happens is those that can leave, those that own the businesses, those that invest in this community will move out. The only ones that will stay are those that cannot afford to leave. Rather than come at it with saying, let's try to artificially limit growth, the more productive conversation is, how do you grow in this environment? What have to be foundational issues for people to live in this community? It's always how you grow, not if you grow. Because unless you're willing to somehow cap population growth, I don't know how you stop people from living where they want to live. 
Even as Las Vegas has become a model for conservation, it still has a long way to go. Last year, its per-person water use averaged 104 gallons per day. The Water Authority aims to get that down to 86 gallons by 2035. And if Lake Mead drops to critical levels in the future, it could start capping residential water use. All that's going to require some hard choices. Because even if governments won't stop people from living where they want to live, nature might. Conservation can only go so far. If people are going to continue living in the desert, we're going to have to find new sources of water. The good news is that there are some pretty good options, some more savory than others. The water that we get from the city of Scottsdale, this direct potable reuse water, is so clean and fresh. Wow. And this is wastewater, right? This is coming from the sewer? Originally, yes. That's next time on How We Survive. How We Survive is hosted by me, Amy Scott. Sophia Polisa-Carr and our senior producer, Caitlin Esch, wrote this episode with me. Other producers include Haley Hirschman, Lena Fonsa, and Courtney Bergseeker. Help this season from Peter Balanon-Rosen and Marketplace reporter Savannah Marr. Our editor is Jasmine Romero. Sound design and original music by Chris Julin, and audio engineering by Brian Allison. Special thanks to John Gordon. Our theme music is by Wonderly. Bridget Bodner is director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is executive director. Neil Scarborough is vice president and general manager of Marketplace. Ten twenty in the morning. Casino. Cocktail waitresses at work. I, I mean, I assume this is how you bet on black. Come on there, buddy. Ooh, black 17. We won 20 bucks. Yay! Oh my god. It worked. Should we double our bet? No! <laughs> we all want to be our best selves. Uh, it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.